And being as how I'd always wanted to give that a go, I decided to put podcasting aside. Uh, then there was this little business about this interview that I'd set up with a certain Academy Award winner. This is Academy Award winner John Seal, and that interview is the conversation that you're about to hear for the first time in its complete form. I had wished to include as much as I could into the article, and even though I had a page to play with, it still wasn't enough. So I'm happy for you dear listeners, to hear, for the first time, in its entirety, my conversation with Academy Award winner, John Seal. The conversation picks up just after I had uh, called John at the agreed time and his phone was busy. I left a message. I waited a minute. I called back. He picked up. Apologised. Turns out the director of Mad Max was eating into my interview time, so I couldn't be too angry with that. Ladies and gentlemen, John Seal. Oh, lovely. No, sorry about that. No, no, that's all right. Do- Dr. George is more important than I am. <laughs> no, he just rang out of the blue. We're not shooting this week. At of course, and as you know, yeah. our area our area here in Sydney is on total lockdown, so we're back behind bars. And, yeah, uh, I know. I just uh, saw it all break out on the news uh, <clears throat> the other day with the, the North Beaches and all that. Yeah, it's, so we're, we're sort of... Uh, Totally locked down, and we don't know for how long at the wow. moment. So, so, so you're uh, <laughs> called. You're, you're working on the next uh, Mad Max, are you? No, I'm not. This isn't a Mad Max. Oh, that this we're is doing. different. This, this is different. This, this is a small uh, ensemble picture that oh, okay. uh, George has had in mind for a long time. Oh, and, very good. Yeah, and it was a mad promise I made at the end of Fury Road eight years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah, that if he wanted a hand and he didn't think I was too old and senile or I dribbled too much, <laughs> um, and if he thought I could help then uh, he'd love me to do it, and he'd, he'd give me a ring. Well, he rang, eh, seven years later. <laughs> well, there you go. Just like, clock, he, just like clockwork, eh? He doesn't, he doesn't uh, rush into things, so... No, no, no. Um, no, we've been shooting that. It's only uh, a little one by comparison to a Mad Max. Oh, and, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> it's, it's all indoors, no action stuff. Wow. Uh, it'll be a very interesting little film, it'll actually. Be a, it'll be a nice, quiet one for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then I think they're gearing up for uh, Furiosa, the next Mad Max. Right, yeah. He's not going to drag you out, out in the dust again, is he? He'd have to use one of those big war rigs with heavy chains <laughs> tied around my neck to drag me into it. I, I, I have decided that uh, this little one will be my last one. Okay. It's, uh, Right. It's very hard to do to knock back somebody like George, who's such a delight to work with. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. But also, he's a very, very imaginative filmmaker, as you, as you know from his oh, yeah. films. I mean, you know the variety of films. Yeah. So it's very hard. But unfortunately, at my age, I, I just feel that another year or more out of my life uh, is maybe uh, you know I'd, I'd rather not have that at the moment. There's a lot of things. I need to do yeah um, you know and at 78 it's sort of it's sort of uh, we're heading into the uh, twilight time really yeah yeah 
Yeah, you want to be, you, you just want the you know, the hammocks and the cold VB at this point. Oh, great, the great minds think alike. Oh, I yeah. think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that reminds me, that was on uh, uh, Not Quite Hollywood when you were you were interviewed for Not Quite Hollywood and you were talking about the stuntmen like Grant Page back in the day and you said, uh, you know, it was more of a case like a bloke just jumped off a motorbike onto a car, dust himself off, have a VB, mate, you'll be right. Exactly, exactly. And we had Grant Page on a, a couple of weeks ago ago on this one and right, uh, oh, it was lovely to see him you know he's uh, he's he's slowing down I mean my god he's got some bruises over the years I'll but, bet I'll bet yeah but he's still chipper I tell you he's still out there yeah yeah he was he was uh, <clears throat> he was an absolute uh, madman with a purpose, wasn't he? He was incredible. Still is, I think, at his age. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, to be standing upright after some of the stuff he's done um, <laughs> is is pretty. Well, I think is is a fair testament to how what a sort of a man he is because uh, he's put the body on the line many times. Oh, many many times. And uh, when I think back that you know, like some of the earlier films we made without the safety factors that we have today, my gosh, it's a wonder we didn't. Um, lose a lot of a lot of guys, but um, that gung ho attitude seemed to win through back then. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, it's it's it's, it's an absolute pleasure and, and a wonderful thing to talk to you. Um, being being a fellow Warwick boy who who wanted to get into the movies, so I, I guess uh, for, for for all intents and purposes of, of the the main part of the story is. Can you can you recollect your your younger days in Warwick, Queensland? Not at all. Not um, at all. I think uh, uh, it's a lot of rumours uh, during my life as to how long we spent there. Oh, okay. The shortest is six weeks, and because it was in 1942, right, smack in the middle of the war, and you know, right at the time when the Japanese were coming south. Right. Um, and I, my dad was off in the Pacific. Um, trying to help and and I, I think I think my mother went back up to Queensland with her, her sister and family who were renting a little house uh, west of Warwick on the on the is it Canamble west of Warwick on that western road or something yeah Coonabarabran yeah. no uh, anyway one yeah. of those they were renting a house so I think she went back there to have have uh, her first child, which mm. turned out to be twins, right. unbeknownst to her. Nowadays, of course, they can tell, but back then they said, oh, no, you're pregnant, that's it, you're going to have one child. But wait a minute, there's another one, and that <laughs> was me. And I'm, I was almost nicknamed, wait a minute, because uh, <laughs> that's what the doctor said. He said, wait a minute, I think there's another one. Wow. And, uh, and I popped out. So I think it was pretty quick that she decided to get back to Sydney. Okay, right, uh, right. So, um, so, so really, I'm a Queenslander by rote only um, right. at this so stage. But, you, you but were literally, my arms in Queensland. Oh, right, you, oh, that's fantastic! You, but you were literally just an overnight sensation in Warwick. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, but I mean, it, I mean, I know that that sometimes you know it's like the whole uh, Allora, which is a small town uh, just north of here. They they uh, talk about the relevance of the the lady who wrote uh, Mary Poppins. Now she wasn't born in Allora. She like you was only sort of passing through. She was there for a time. But you know, it's always it's always uh, encouraging uh, when you're. Especially like uh, the people that will be reading this, young kids who want to work in film reading this. In rural areas that you can go from somewhere really small and have some awfully big adventures. Chet, the whole thing is, uh, uh, it, it went in a giant circle. Born in Warwick, 
because, as I said, my mother went up to meet her sister there, right. who'd married a uh, who'd married a cane farmer out of Mackay. Right. And uh, they didn't make contact for the whole of our childhood until after I did the leaving certificate, and then I, for some reason it came up in a conversation about rellos and things like that. And and she said, of course, you know, your uncle's. Uh, is now a a station a, a sheep station owner in Queensland. Right. I said no, no. Tell me more. I was seventeen, I think, and I'd been kicking around Sydney after the leaving certificate, which I passed barely, and didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I I heard about the Rellos. I went. I I took a bet from the company that I was working with. The guys there, they said I couldn't hitchhike up to Queensland, meet Morellos and get back in a week. Right. So I took that bet on and I went up there and I met my uncle um, and and my mother's sister and a lot of uncles I'd never met. And he offered me a job on the property as a jackaroo. He said, look, we're looking for a jackaroo. Why don't you come out and, and do that? And I thought, yeah, crikey, I've been kicking around Sydney, don't know what I, I'm doing. I'm, I'm meddling around with Super 8 film because my mates and I at school, we were making little movies just for, to pass the time, really. You know, there was no TV back then, right. or it hadn't come in by then, but it, in the earlier days it hadn't. So we were meddling around with this little 8mm camera. And I thought, yeah, why not? So I, I uh, hitchhiked back up to Queensland with my little camera and a toothbrush and got there and we went out to the property in Longreach. And I was there for two years, Jack Garooing, and with the manager and his uh, offsider. And uh, I loved it. I loved it so much. It was a great hard life, seven days a week, dawn till dusk getting thrown off silly bloody horses and things and learning to ride and you know for two years and I, the little camera I recorded my life's work up there to send back to my parents and that's all but by the end of it the two years I was looking at this little camera and thinking what if you could make a career out of this, make a living out of this, go to places like National Geographic would, go to places that people weren't game to go to or couldn't afford to go to, you know, whatever. I could go there and film it. Right, right. And it slowly started to niggle me. And then the drought broke and we lost 3,000 head of sheep overnight that got bogged in the black soil right. country out there. And I thought, this is madness. And... Uh, a way to live, you know, it's it's the true droughts and flooding rains uh, syndrome. And I thought, I don't know whether I could do that. And very sadly for my uncle, I bailed out, uh, drove my Land Rover down south, sold it in Mitchell, hitchhiked home, and here I am. Um, I, I pursued that career, went to the ABC, which was back then had a lot of money and a lot of cameramen and, and uh, was the best training ground you could ever get, I felt, right. uh, in film work uh, because they did documentaries, they did hard news, they did uh, four quarters type programs, rural programs, medical programs, and then they started to do drama work. And they decided, because they had a lot of money, well, we'd better shoot it in 35mm instead of 16. And I got onto the front of that 
and suddenly we'd go out to, we went back to Longreach to do, uh, Broken Hill, sorry, to do a, uh, a drama series for the ABC with Jackie Weaver when she was 16 or 17 and it called What Gina and uh, we shot that and I couldn't believe it. I, there I was in the outback, in the outback, which I loved. But now we had a big 35mm camera to look after and actors playing roles of drama out in that uh, outback. I just fell in love with it right there and then. So I just uh, stayed with that and uh, I've had a fantastic life travelling the world. I can, yeah. Yeah. I can, only, I can, only, I can only imagine. Like, I mean, no, uh, I, having loved cinema since before I knew what loving something really was except for my mum and dad um I can only imagine like we we the audience see these films the the final image is a composite of many things but that that look through the camera I mean I can only imagine being there on the day in some of the vistas that you have uh framed uh which will will live on forever hopefully um, of some of these incredible uh, vistas, landscapes, action sequences, like you said. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like on the day looking through the viewfinder and and you know picking your picking picking the picking out that shot, or or you and the likes of George Miller or Anthony Mangella or Rob Ryan or whoever picking out those shots, Peter Weir. I mean, what what is what is that? I mean, can you recall any of those uh, for us? Like like one, you know, like a, a shot that that is, you know, maybe famous in one of the films, and what it was like setting up that. You know, there's always a horror story. Oh, that shot was terrible to set up, and we had so many problems, and and so on and so forth. You know. Yeah, uh, over sixty films, you can imagine there's an awful lot of those. Yeah, I <laughs> there's reckon. There's a lot of yeah. bad ones, and a lot a, a lot of what I hope were good ones. Yeah, but. The thing is, uh, what what I I love is what I've loved found that I'm loving more and more now mm. is that people, if you meet them and they find out what you did, right. and then they find out you did a film, say like Dead Poets Society, right, right, and and then you find your beautiful little granddaughter who's in uh, high school. She texts me and says, guess what, Papa? We're all watching Dead Poets Society. That's fantastic. That is the most wonderful thing you could ever hand somebody who helps to make films, yeah. who helps make that film. Yeah. It's the greatest compliment because the film had that uh, substance of, of life that is worth living and the honey off the tongue and the, all of that stuff that was written into that script, I think Peter beautifully put on film mm. and, and I helped him record that as images. Yeah. And we worked hard to make it uh, very simple but but very explicit to the script because right. Peter loved the script and he's a genius director, let's face it. Yes, oh, Peter, um, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And, and he, he did a, sim, a simply lovely story about, you know, life, living life and yeah. finding enjoyment in, well, poetry in that film, but it could represent anything. I think that, the, you know, to be able to help make a film like that and then find that 
you know, there's so many people around the world have said to me, oh, my gosh, I love that film such and such, or they loved some other film because it gave them, you know, maybe it helped them get a sense of purpose of life, of, of appreciation of life, and that has got to be the greatest compliment, I think, mm. not only for me but for the for the director and the writer oh, who sure. have, yeah, put it all together, and it's brilliant being able to help them yeah. make them. I I I did I, there's, I I tried to be selective about going through the film, so I've broken it down more into directors than rather than films because there are so many to talk about, and I don't want to keep you from your VB and your hammock too long. <laughs> but, That's right. The VB is getting warm. I know. I know. We need more more ice, more <laughs> ice. But um. And so I've broken it down into directors, and since you brought up George at the start, we could start with, with George Miller and the films that you uh, worked on with him, like uh, Lorenzo's Oil and, uh, of course, Fury Road and um, and movies like that. Now, George, as you said, is, is an incredible... He's, he's a man who never really repeats himself, except when he's doing, you know, Mad Max movies, but he's... Um, I, I gather a very uh, intuitive and, and visual director when he stands with you and say, you know, John, what do you think about this and that and the next? He is, he is. Uh, more so that his his uh, filmic mind is so versatile that he can do Happy Feet, which is an animated film, and get an Academy Award for it. Yeah. You know, he, he and Byron Kennedy, his original partner, who sadly was killed in a helicopter crash, they put together the original Mad Max. And he'll tell you today that they didn't know what they were doing. They'd never made a film before in their lives. He said, we stumbled through it, made so many big mistakes and things. But the basic essence of the film is there, and it captivated audiences. Mm. Now the sophistication of Mad Max is down to Fury Road. I mean, Dean Semler was going to shoot Fury Road. Right. He, he He's done uh, what the other... Two, uh, yeah. Two Thunderdome, uh, Road yeah. Warrior, Thunderdome. I think that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did those ones. Yeah. And, and then he was gonna. He was like he was prepping Fury Road, but he sadly lives in America. Well, not sadly, but he lives in America, and, right. and he had some uh, personal problems over there that he needed to go and fix up. So he bailed out. And George asked me to do it because I had done Lorenzo's Oil with him. Yeah. And, uh, oh gosh, it, I was almost retired before that. And I thought, no, 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 you can't miss out on a film with George and one as iconic as I... I was hearing on the grapevine all the things that were going to be done for in Fury Road. And I, I was thinking, gosh, that's going to be an iconic little film, that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, it ended up an iconic giant film because, yeah. you know, we, we had up to... 1,500, 1,600, 1,700 people sitting down for breakfast in the middle of the Namibian desert. I oh, know, it's crazy. That's not funny. You know? I know. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I literally uh, did an interview before he passed with uh, Hugh Keysburn, the... Uh, oh, Amor lovely man. A morning lovely. Joe. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he talked about it. He said it was so wonderful. He said I was just like John. They, they, were, they were very attentive to me. They treated me like an old man. I loved it. <laughs> no, he was a delight to work with. He he rallied the 
all the boys dressed as wall boys, you know, and he, oh, he was fantastic. That's so sad. So yeah. sad. It, it, it um, you know, it's so sad to have worked with somebody that's so appreciative of the work. Yeah. Um, and then he's passed away, but yeah. I suppose there's, that's there's, life. There's been a few go in the last month, though. Uh, Sandy Harbert went too, I heard. He did, he yeah. did, yeah. 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 Some yeah. of those, early, a lot of those early ones now are the, starting to the, the reach that. Yeah, yeah. Used by date, yeah. But uh, uh, just, you know, with having done Lorenzo's Oil with George, which is just a, a totally different film, but George, having been a doctor, he read the synopsis for that in a in-flight bag on the way to London. And by the time he landed in London, he was going to make the movie. And yeah. that was all there was to it. He dropped everything else that he was thinking about, and he just went off and made Lorenzo's oil. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to shoot that for him, and then he asked me to do uh, Mad Max Fury Road, and I loved doing that. Yeah. Now we're doing a completely different film called 3,000 Years of Longing. 3,000 years, 3, yeah. years of Longing. Yeah. And it is nothing like a Fury Road. Um, it's a very intricate little piece of about two people, and seventy percent of it is going to be shot in a hotel room. So it's so different to anything that he's he's done before. But his heart's in it so much that he's just loving every minute going to work and and doing it. So uh, that's what he was reading about this morning. He's off looking at editing. He's not in uh, lockdown in his area at the moment, so oh, okay. he's good. able to go to the editing room and he was on his way there right. um, to watch a whole lot of stuff that cool. we've shot. So Very that was good. good. Very good. But um, another, another gentleman we should talk about because you worked on a few of his pictures. And in fact, probably the first picture I saw your work in as director of photography was uh, BMX Bandits, of course, Brian Trenchard Smith, <laughs> uh, that mighty B-movie uh, godfather himself. We, we we literally did an interview a couple of weeks ago about Brian's new uh, book, uh, Adventures in the B-movie Trade, and um, yes, and, and uh, Brian was uh, a, an early uh, a stop in, in your career too with, uh, with, uh, Death, with Death Cheaters, wasn't it, or... I think it was Death Chief. Well, I came on. I came on board with uh, Second Unit on uh, Man from Hong Kong. Right. Yeah. Russell Boyd was shooting that, and they needed a Second Unit crew, and they very nicely rang me and said, "You know, come in and do Second Unit." And I got on with with Brian. I think on that enough for him to uh, get me to shoot a low budget film when Russell wasn't available on it. That was Death Cheaters. Uh, and it was a 16 mil blow up, very cheap little thing. But gosh, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. A little bit dangerous at times. So things went wrong a, a couple of times. And that's again where Grant Page came to the fore. But Johnny Hargraves, who's passed away a long time ago, he, he was uh, there. They rallied to the, to the low budget cause and we just had a great time. And Brian's never phased about anything. If the producers chop, you know, half his budget off, then he, then he just rewrites the film quickly and makes it a little cheaper, but just as fun, you know. And it, I think he's done that all his life, and that's why his forte is that low-budget thing, but getting the maximum out of it. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, no, he's um, he's a real treasure, Brian. He's the, he's <laughs> hey, and the, I mean, like yourself, he's full of wonderful. Uh, that I don't know if you've read his book, or he, he might he might send you a copy, or he should. 
But um, uh, many great stories about his uh, early life in England and seeing some of the uh, some of the uh, classic films being made, like Beckett uh, and, and uh, films like that. So I mean, it's uh, it's it's just you know you you swim in the cinema when when you talk to. Um, all these filmmakers, because not only do you talk about the films that they worked on, but their inspirations and all that kind of things. Like, what were the, what were the pictures that you saw as as a younger fellow that, uh, that sort of lit your interest in 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 the movies, if as it were. In the very early days, we only had the matinees uh, every Saturday at the local cinema. Right. Uh, and it was a shilling or something, you know, yeah. a little over ten cents to go to the movies. And yeah. but but our our parents would, you know, all the kids used to go on the Saturday matinees. They had these fantastic serials, you know, uh, uh, that went on every week. That it was another another episode. Then they'd have you know their normal full length film, um, which was always a kids film, you know. So we watched all of those, but but they were all the standard early ones. I mean, as I as I went through school into high school, uh, we didn't go to there. And as I said, my interest was in a Super 8 camera. With my mates, we'd, we'd go off and make baddie films and things like that. Um, unfortunately, I lost a lot. I think there must have been a move somewhere. And right. They went out. Um, but there was quite a lot of films. I used to sit for days and weeks editing them and putting them together. And, and gosh, it's sad they went, but uh, so be it. Um, and it wasn't until uh, really my teens that I started to take an interest in other films. And the one that really, really uh, got me, I saw it seven times pretty well in a row, wow. was Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, just the excitement of the story, yeah. uh, the the, uh, the anamorphic uh, visuals, uh, and by then I was starting to get a little bit interested in photography. But it wasn't until I went out back with that little eight mil camera oh, that right. it all sort of cemented <laughs> in my mind. Sure, yeah. And, and I came back and pursued it for the rest of my life. Yeah, so it took took a little while for it to hook in. Yeah, there were, no, there were no film schools. You know, America, America. When I first went over there in 1982 to shoot Witness for uh, Peter Weir, yeah, you know, all the all the kids over there would say, "Oh, what what film school did you go to?" And I say, "Well, I did. There weren't any. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just I just went to the school of hard knocks, which yeah. is right. get a job in the industry, get beaten up and told how to do it." Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's how I learned, and they all just shake their heads because mm. a lot of the uh, lot of the American systems now demand a diploma of some kind from a film school. Sure, yeah, and, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's kind of really a funny industry where you don't need any of that to yeah. to, to do very well. Yeah. Um, but you know, everybody seems to parents and things seem to think that uh, you know in those early days of. of when I was working at the ABC, my dad's mates, and he had a lot of really, uh, he was a, a artist, a black and white artist, right. and he had a lot of artistic mates, and they'd all say, oh, what's, what's the boy doing, Clem? And he'd say, well, he's working at the ABC, he's working with cameras and things. Oh, good, good. When's he going to get a proper job? 
And that was the criteria back at that stage of my early years. Uh, mm. What the criteria was, get a proper job. If camera work, no, 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 no. But now you look at the numbers of film schools, the number of students wanting to get into oh, I film. Know. It's crazy. Oh. It is extraordinary, you know, oh, and it's yeah. now regarded as a as a very proper job if you can survive. Yeah, can. yeah. I mean, I've... Uh, you know, oddly enough, just just this uh, last year past, I, I finally broke into the business. I got a couple of uh, low budget movies coming out next year, which I, I'm predominantly a screenwriter. I've been trying to write movies since forever, but no one, I couldn't give them away. But I had a bit of luck this year and got a few uh, uh, produced. So you know, I finally broke in after all this time. But just like you said, I get asked now that I'm on the other side of the picture, they're like, well, how did you do it? What film school did you go to? And I said, I just watched movies. I read other people's scripts. I read a few books and I just sat and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and showed it to people, as many, you know, industry people that I could. And, you know, and it took 20 years to, to get there because you're trying to convince someone that you know what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. And so that makes it... Very tough business to break into, and in some ways, also tough to stay in it. You know, sure, it's, uh, yeah. it's a very itinerant business. So, yeah. but but now it is far more accepted as a as a, uh, a profession. One might might call it that. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> Whether you can or not. yeah. Though <laughs> though though, I think I think some of the terms uh, filmmaker and and all this sort of stuff get tossed around pretty liberally. I mean. I think that there's still, I think the line still exists. I think that, yes, it's okay to, it's okay to call yourself anything, but I think that once you've attained a certain professional level anyway, to the point where you are, not necessarily you're the guy that they always want, but you're, you know, you're well respected by your peers and so on. So I think there's still a line, don't you, that exists between, you know, the people that, people that say that they are and people that actually are? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the industry sorts them out yeah. very, very quickly, you know. Um, but I, I agree totally with your point about the 20 years of battling a lot of uh, young people, uh, even middle-aged, who want to get into the industry, ask me how to get there. How do I get there? Yeah. And I've always said, always said, put the blinkers on. Put your blinkers on. If you want to be a writer or a director or a cameraman or editor or sound man, whatever, put your blinkers on and go for that. Yeah. Don't don't get strayed across to... I've got mates who, who wanted to be in camera, couldn't get a position in camera in the early days, so they moved into electrics or grips, and they're still there. Yeah. And they just say, oh, God, I wish I'd moved, you know. I wish I'd stayed on the line. Yeah. So I, I've learned out of that that, and I just tell them all: put your blinkers on. Yeah. Don't get swayed by the the money or the Porsches or the whatever you might make right, out of other yeah. part of it. Go yeah. for what you want to do. Otherwise, you you might not be happy by the end of it. You yeah. Know? Well, I mean, if you're only at the end of the day, if you only ever did it for money, you're not really doing it for the right reasons, are you? That's exactly right as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you you. You 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 found 
you found something in in your profession that that speaks to what you wanted out of your life and what you love to do and if it was only about the money to keep you know the vbs in the fridge and your pool clean and whatever else then it wasn't really about you know, if, if it's all about money, it's not really about anything, is it? Because if it was all about money, I, w- I should have stayed a plumber like my careers <laughs> officer at high school told me I should be. Right, yeah, yeah. A plumber, you know, because, you know, you know you're going to get regular work and the money will be incoming all the time. Well, the movie it. industry, you can go for six months or eight months without a job. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, so if, you, if you're doing it for the love, you're going to learn to starve. Yeah. and put your blinkers on. Yeah. But if by putting your blinkers on, I, I tell them that people will believe your commitment. If yeah. they believe your commitment, they're going to commit to you and, and get you on the job. Uh, as long as you prove you can do the job and you do it in a, such a manner that, that that's what they were looking for. As a cameraman, you have to work to every director as a different person. You can't ever... Go for, I, I don't feel you can ever go from one film to the other taking the same type of photography that you might have liked on the last movie. Right. And I've, I've always said in lectures to cameramen yes. um, around the world, I've always said I take three to four months off between movies. I've missed out on a lot of really good ones because I wouldn't go um, back to back. Right. Uh, I always take that time off not only to be with my family, sure. um, but also to clear my brain. Yeah. So the next movie I read, I read the script. It's a new script, different geography, different location, different climate, different... Everything about it is different, and therefore I should photograph it differently. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I tried to... I tried to I've done, and yeah. I try to say to people, I feel that's the way it should be done. If you take a style... Yes. Uh, one movie to the, uh, the next one, the next one, the next one, and yet they're different stories, yes. then you're depleting the purpose of the story. Yes. And I, I think a lot of cinematographers are actually guilty of that today. They have a... A lot of them are. I mean, so many so many films, you can come in late on them and not see who, who's shooting it or directing it. You yes. can say, oh, I reckon that's a so-and-so film. Yeah, shot. yeah. Because they have... And then, yeah. then you realise it was, and you think, yeah, that's wrong. That's wrong, you know. Yeah, but no, no. I mean, it's right because you're. I mean, you're you're trying to capture, you're capturing a completely different story. And while you've got your, you know, your tricks of the trade to to get the shots, you're not trying to. You try. Well, this this movie is completely like the talented Mr. Ripley is completely different from the paper. Not just in plot wise, but in the look, the feel, the tones. Yeah. The textures. I mean, the paper is a very, uh, you know, it, it, it's a very monochromatic world. It's a busy world. The camera is very fluid, but with the talented Mr. Ripley, you've got those uh, beautiful European sunsets. You've got the texture of those cobblestone streets. You've got, uh, you know, the light and shadow because you're dealing with a character that is a man of of many secrets uh so you know it's uh you know it's that it's that beautiful dance what look what what look looks best for this story is that is that a fair comment oh absolutely no absolutely the the paper was set in one day and and we had to make that match that was a 
fairly technical firm because six weeks in that office had to look like one day. Right. And the yeah. weather was weather was changing outside continuously of uh, the New York office, and we're on the twenty sixth floor, so I couldn't put lights through the window. I had to rely on lights inside, so it made it a bit of a challenge, but it did give it its own individual look. And I'm a great believer in that, that even if it's not what you, maybe you wanted to get, yep. as long as you can get the look that suits the film, you're on a roll. You yeah. know, keep it going. Yeah. And and to me, that's 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 why I'm, I always say to them, get rid of the last film out of your brain, you know, yeah. and start the next one as though it's the first film you've ever shot. Yeah. Uh, and, you know that that's the way I've worked, and I, I think it I think it might have helped. I hope so. I would be I would be in trouble with my wife later on, who's a, a massive Harry Potter fan, not to ask you a Harry Potter question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was what was shooting uh, the first movie of this uh, um, um, immense franchise uh, like? What was uh, you know giving birth to the cinematic Harry Potter? It was nerve-wracking, to say the least. I mean, partly because Chris Columbus had to cast a film, a film that was going to represent the first of many that were going to be so popular that he had to get it so right with those characters. And we filmed hundreds of kids, put them on film. So a lot of the pre, what we call the pre-production was not simply lighting the sets and getting ready to shoot the movie. Right. A lot of the filming we did was casting. Wow, and yeah. the, the kids came from all over the world. They brought them in, put them up, we filmed them, and then sent them home. And then, anal- then Chris and his boys and the producers would analyze the characters and uh, kids. And finally, they had to select them. Once that was done, the only problem was that they were very naive to film work, so yeah. a lot of the scenes we had to shoot over and over again because they'd break up in the middle of it, um, either suddenly realising they were starring in a Harry Potter movie or the fact that one of them would say a, a wrong line and they'd break up hysterically, you know. Um, it, it slowed it up immensely, but once again, Chris Columbus was one of the most amazing directors. He he, he was really au fait with kids, which was such an asset um, that he was able to keep the kids under control. If they fluffed it and blew it and we had to do another take, he just made light of it, saying, don't worry, don't worry, that's okay, we'll do it again. Come on, uh, no, remember, come on, knuckle down, and he, he just guide them through it so that was that was the, the, the hard part of the shooting the rest of it was shooting in old castles we weren't allowed to touch the walls right. we weren't allowed to touch them wow. with our fingers let alone <laughs> put um, lamps and lights and things near them wow. they were these were so ancient buildings that you know, we wanted the architecture, but well, gosh, it was made it made it technically very difficult to shoot. But we get round it. it there are only challenges. It's like going off into uh, Canada to shoot Dreamcatcher, and you you're working in a meter deep of snow for the entire film. It's yeah. hard work, but you you know you get it done. You just set your mind to it, and away you go. Uh, or you go to a desert where it's like Mor- in Morocco. It was 
50 degrees Celsius and, and y- y- okay, it's hot. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's dry desert heat. We've done that before and the camera crew, we all knew we had to get the cameras um, protected against heat and sandstorms, uh, et cetera. We do it. Yeah. Uh, other films like Perfect Storm, we had to get ready for a lot of water. So, you know, the crew crew have done it and we innovated a lot of new things to help that along and we and you do it. Yeah. So the, the physical side of it isn't it's a challenge. It's not a hardship. Uh, once the challenge is accepted, you build the equipment to suit that hardship and when the hardships arrive, uh, you're ready for it. Yeah. And if you're not, you're you're a bit of a dumbo dumbo because you know you're gonna get it. The yeah. sandstorms, the rain, the water—you you, know—you know you're going to get that. So you just get ready for it, and it eases the pressure completely. So, or every film is different. I think every film has to be approached not only photographically to suit the emotion of that film. Um, Dead Poet Society—we shot that, averaging 21 setups a day with a single camera. Right. And and that shattered the Americans. They they couldn't believe that the director and I, as foreigners, would could and would do that mm. and get the performance and get the film, the wonderfully emotional film that they got at the end of it. Mm. They couldn't believe it. They just said, "My God, your careers are cemented." <laughs> if you, can, you know, by doing that film that fast, but keeping the emotion in. Yeah is extraordinary for the American system. They couldn't believe it. Yeah. So it's little things like that that I loved about it being Australian. And, you know, Michael Keaton, when we were shooting the paper, yeah. Michael Keaton came up to me and he said, John, he said, I'm amazed at you Australians. He said, all your actors, your directors, your cameramen, your, your technician, all of those people do so well out of Australia in the, in the international industry. Why is it? And I, I'd thought about it for years, and, and I couldn't come up with an answer, yeah. except I looked at him and I said, Michael, I don't know really what it is, but I've got a good idea it could be something they're putting in the beer. <laughs> and he laughed, and he, he looked at me, he grimaced. He did that famous Michael Keaton double-take grimace, yeah. and he, and he walked off. Wow. It was so funny. So uh, a year later, I was up in um, the wilds of Canada shooting Dreamcatcher, and um, Dean Semler and I got, uh, wonderfully, we got an AM. And I got the photograph, and he got the text, because right. I sent back a photograph of myself, and I had an Australian bush hat, which are great in the snow, I might add. Yeah. And the, bo- the boys said, what's this for? And I told them. And they said, oh, quick, we'll set you up. So they set me up. And they they packed snow on the top of my hat. So, so <laughs> I, had, I had snow all over my hat and shoulders and things like that. And, they, and the stills photographer took the photograph and sent it to the Herald. Mm-hmm. I think it was the Herald. And then, and then Dean did the text. And he quoted me in the text as saying, that uh, Johnny Seal says the reason Australians do so well overseas because it's something they're putting in the beer. (laughs) 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 And it went out on the front page of the Herald. So I was pretty chuffed with that. But 
it's the go. It's the give it a go attitude. It's got to be the winner um, yeah. every time. Yeah, I think know? so. Well, I think so too. And 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 uh, we don't stuff around either. No, we don't. We 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 look at something. There's a challenge. Yeah. And we put a piece of rope around a tree, put a piece of canvas on it, yeah. paint it, and, and there you go. That's the Vietnam War. Okay, yeah. let's shoot it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, yeah. And, it, and it works. It works because it's the influence to the audience that that is a Vietnam or that is the desert or that is a brick wall and that's only painted. Okay. And, and they believe it because you've made it look good enough to believe so they believe it and away you go, you make your movie. And, and I love that. I love that. Totally. John, I've only got two more questions and I'll let you get back to that slowly room temperaturising beer. Um, <laughs> But, the one with uh, the secret elixir. The secret elixir, yeah, to, to Australian cinematographers anywhere. It's VB. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. But, uh, no, my, my last two questions is, is one, um, I, I, uh, I was very saddened to hear when Anthony Minghella passed. I thought he was a wonderful director. I just wonder if you could touch on uh, both winning the uh, little gold little bald man and, and working with uh, Anthony Minghella. Well, both both okay, were wonderful experiences, absolute wonderful experiences. I didn't meet Anthony. Um, he took the advice of a, a lovely Australian first assistant director, Steve Andrews, um, who I, I had done quite a lot of films with Steve and we got on really well and he uh, proffered my name, I believe, and Anthony said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll go there and I flew to Rome and met him and we, we shot the film it, it's interesting that you know I've been a camera operator for a lot of big Australian cinematographers yeah. and a couple of them uh, they were there to shoot films to get awards Right. and I always thought very early in the piece this is not right you shouldn't be shooting films for for money or for awards. It, it it's not a good combination because you're going to stifle the director. You're going to stifle the movie. Try to do perfect pictures, and sometimes maybe the pictures shouldn't be perfect to match a a, a, a raw script that needs to be as raw and basic and animalistic as heck. You need to shoot it that way. You don't want to shoot beautifully lit commercial type shots just to put over a raw, a raw film. And so I, I, I used to watch these guys, and I think, no, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with what the way they're lighting this. So I always thought when I became a director of photography, if I ever did, that I would shoot the movie and not anything else. And it was the same with English Patient. We we went through the uh, pre-production, analysed the film. We're set in Italy. We're set in the desert in Tunisia or North Africa. And these should look different. But they should look different in their own way if we could do it. And so rather than saying, meanwhile, back in Africa, meanwhile, back in Italy, as the film intercut between the two areas, we... We, you know, we didn't. Anthony was adamant he didn't want to put these supers on all the time, telling people where they were, and we worried about a lot of things. And 
we didn't have to worry because with a little bit of colouring, Italy became a certain colour and the desert became another colour. So when you cut to it, it was automatically in the visuals. And so we worked hard to do all that. It's lovely. It's a very, very lovely thing when people decide that all of that thinking and all of those thoughts manifest themselves into the film and they think it's good enough to represent an Academy Award it is a wonderful thing. And, and I once again, I do lecture to young people that go make the movie mm. and, and anything else that comes is fantastic because mm. it's people appreciating what you've done, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. It could still be nominated. Yeah. And, and I think after five American nominations and one win, maybe, maybe when I lecture, I, I know a little bit of what I'm talking about, maybe. Right. Because that's what I've done, as always, I've made the movie yeah. and damn everything else, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think I learned out of those early guys. You learn out of everybody. Yeah. That, you know, their desire to get an award for shooting a movie isn't the right way to start out. It, it, it shouldn't happen until somebody else decides it's worthy of that. Right. And then you think, oh, gosh, really? And then that, to me, is you made the movie the way the director wanted it, and, and, and it's, it's worthy of an award afterwards? Fantastic. If yeah. the director asks you, please don't make it look like commercials, like beautifully shot things. This is a raw film. Can we make it? Can we even do black and white? You know? right. You've got to say, yeah. yeah. See what you're getting at. That's the movie you want to make. And you've got to believe them because they're the ones who are directing it and making it. And I think we we tag along and we are servants to that and should be servants. The American system pushed very much into the cameraman being the master of, of the film. And when I got there in 82, it was that was part of, what they were trying to tell me over there. Yeah. And I disagreed with them. And I started shooting with high-speed negative for an entire film, and they didn't agree with that. I started shooting with zooms. When good zoom lenses started to come out, I used zooms because they're so much faster. They didn't agree with that. And uh, then I started shooting multiple cameras way back on Rain Man when I did Rain Man. I started, that was the, and I know the exact shot that I started using multiple cameras. And I realized that shooting multiple cameras, cross shooting two to three cameras, we made much better films because the actors could ad lib, they could overlap each other, the editor had perfect continuity. Everything about it made better movies. So I've been using multiple cameras ever since. And I got into trouble for it. So, you know, I was told I was shooting big budget movies like television. I said, well, if you don't like the images, that's bad luck because I think what I'm doing is making a better movie. And they they couldn't see it. They are now. They are now. 20 years later, they are now. But back then, I got chastised. Uh, in England and in America for shooting multiple cameras, using zooms and using a high-speed negative for a high, uh, an entire film. Mm-hmm. And I, but I don't care. 
I don't care about that because I think the films I helped to make uh, are what the director wanted to make. And I think out of the film success, I think maybe that was the right thing to do. Well, so, so I never went into a movie thinking, oh, this one this one will get an Academy Award. Never. No. It was always go make the movie. Yeah, and no, it, no. It, yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you. I think that I, I, just like the same thing as doing it for money, I think if you're doing it for prestige too, I mean, if, you, if, if you're doing it because you want to be seen, you want to be seen, then it's, it, it's counterproductive because ultimately it's the film that's going to be seen. So if the film's not any good, <laughs> you know, you're not going to win the trophy or get the money, are you? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's also it's it's whether you really care about them uh, oh, or whether true. they're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, enough people thought that was nice enough to not be nominated, or yeah. that was nice enough to win one. Oh, oh lovely. Oh, great. You know, right. and that's the great satisfaction. It's much more so than than seeing. I mean, I as I said, I I've talked to a, I've been on the set of American films yeah. and where the crew camera crew, uh, you know, I had a big enough name to be known and they came up and I said, how's this one going? You know, it's looking great and it was being directed by an Australian director, mm. which is why I was there, invited to, to work. And they, they, the American camera crew said, oh, he's going to win an Academy Award for this film. Well, he didn't even get nominated. Yeah. So it's, it's, you can't ever think about it, I don't think. No. Or, or make it part of your criteria of life. It's it, you. Otherwise, you're a loser. Yeah. When when it doesn't happen, you go, oh jeez. Yeah. Why do that? Yeah. You know, why not ignore it all? And if it happens, it's an elation. Totally. Um, totally. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, my last question, John, I, I thought about which uh, I had a lot of requests to, to talk about different films when I talked to you, and they everyone had their sort of favourites. Uh, and you know, of course, Mad Max and all that gets gets a lot of uh, sizzle. But I wanted uh, to, for my last question to ask your memories of probably the film that on your uh, CV that I've watched probably the most out of all of them is actually The Mosquito Coast. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, oh, fan I really, I, out of, I'm not saying. I mean, I, I love all of Peter's work. It's great, but I don't know, the one I seem to the one I seem to go to the most when I feel like watching something. Uh, Peter Weir, I always seem to go to the Mosquito Coast. I don't know why. It just uh, I don't know the the idea of that whole like just drop everything and let's go do something crazy in the wilderness. I don't know. Maybe it's that kind of uh, you know that that let's run off and have an adventure kind of thing. But I mean, it ends tragically, of course, in the story. But you know. Yeah, no. It, it it again. That was um, uh, it, it was lovely working with Peter on that. And as you say, it was an extraordinary sort of modern day adventure that goes wrong. Um, we loved doing it. It was very hard. And again, that was the film that I ended up changing over to high speed negative and shooting the entire film on it because of the canopy of the jungle. Right. Basically, didn't give me enough light even during the day to use the slower daylight film stock back then. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, I'm going to have to shoot the whole movie on high speed. Yeah. 
So then I realised the grain structure was going to be constant all the way through the movie, which was a, an asset. Mm. And by the end of the movie, I thought, damn it, I'm going to shoot everything. All the movies now on high-speed negative from now on, which I did. Right. Um, but, it, but it was a film that was full of adventure and very much almost bordering on a documentary. Yeah. Um, the way we, yeah, the way we have to shoot it. And, and this is where I think... It, as a as a camera person going into film, I tell the students, you're not going to ever always get the perfect conditions to shoot what you think are the perfect images for your film. Sometimes a movie's going to be in a situation that's going to make you reach well out into the depths of darkness of cinematography that you've never ventured into and pull those out of the bag. And that's what you're going to have to do. So whereas a lot of the Americans uh, at that stage, even at Mosquito Coast, would have gone in there with massive quantities of lights and cameras and lenses to shoot a big production, we went in with a minimum of gear, small Australian hard-hitting crew, and we shot it almost completely like a documentary with a minimum amount of equipment. And it gave Peter, I think, the freedom to shoot whatever he wanted to shoot because he wasn't bogged down with massive production facilities, right, which, yeah. which can occur. Mm. Um, and has has occurred. They still make the films, but you can. They become a, a production film that looks like a production film. Whereas mm. I think and hope that Mosquito Coast looks like. Larry Kasdan is a fantastic American writer, mm. and and he's a movie maker in the past. And I loved working with Larry because on his film we were shooting three cameras and we're having a lot of focus problems. Right. And the cameras, the boys were buzzing a bit on focus, and I got really worried about it. And I said to Larry, Larry, I'm worried about uh, the focus on the film. Why is that, John? He'd say, why is that, John? And I'd say, well, Larry, the audience are going to, if they get annoyed at the fact that it's buzzing in focus, that'll take them out of the movie, and we've got to try and keep them in the emotion of the movie. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, right. He said, good. He said, but I, he said, I'm not worried about. I said, well, good, because that's what you're going to get, you know, I think. And I said, Larry, why aren't you worried about it? He said, because it makes me feel that the camera is there by invitation, not design. And I thought, bugger me, that is fantastic. And that came from an American... Uh, director, writer, yeah. who loved the thought that the camera isn't always correct. Right. That it gives you the feeling that we walked into the room and there are all these guys and they're talking about, quick, roll a camera, roll a camera. Right. And it, the lighting mightn't be quite perfect. The focus isn't quite good. The camera a bit wobbly because it's handheld maybe and it's trying to grab the moments, and it makes the audience feel that it's organic. They walked into a room, and they're in the middle of a drama. Right, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I love that. I love that. I, that carried through from that film on forever. Mm. Um, and I've kept that in my mind, and I've told students that. 
that, uh, you know, sometimes the movie should be very organic mm. and have a feeling that you've sucked the audience through that virtual window of a movie screen. You've taken them into a world that you've created and they're there because that world is real enough to keep them there. Yeah. And that is the essence, of, to me, of, of visual movie making. Um, sure. So all the films I go into have been into, same with Gorillas in the Mist. Yeah. Um, Michael uh, decided on that to go to Africa, to go to the Gorillas. And the studio kept saying, no, why don't we do it on a soundstage with blokes dressed up as Gorillas? <laughs> and Michael kept saying it won't work. Yeah. Because they're not real gorillas. Yeah. And he went to Africa, he went in amongst the gorillas, and he came back and he said, I've got to do it in amongst the gorillas, and if you don't agree with it, don't give me the money and the film won't be made. Not yeah. the way, I, and I won't direct it. Yeah. You'll have to make it with somebody else, and you'll have to do And they ground their teeth, and they ummed and ahed, and they, they kept pushing him right to the last minute. We were on planes heading into into uh, into Africa, and they were still grinding their teeth. But we made it, and we made it, and it was totally documentary in, in its essence. I had no lights. We just had to shoot it. I had to pull all the available light out of the head photographically and, and make it work. It, it was about, but we loved doing it. Yeah. We, all the Australians I took on it, they loved it. Yeah. I think that's what Australian cinematographers have always been lauded for is the natural, capturing it naturally. Like, you know, it's, there's a natural, like you, you can, you can, you can light an outdoor scene and make it look really flash. But, there's something about the the way the light falls naturally that can be captured in an equally beautiful way. Exactly, and and the battle with the light meter, you know, back then to make things balance mm. and also to match together, boy, that was a challenge when you didn't have the lights or the equipment to to yeah. help make it match, which would have slowed the production down, which yeah. would have taken out that organic feel yeah. of you know to another director poles apart saying you know I like the camera being there by invitation not design worked for gorillas in the mist and so many people over the years have said to me oh gorillas in the mist I loved it because mm. they knew it was a real film it was a real person in mm. real life yeah. and, and and I think maybe the way Michael captured it yes. uh, was so real that you were there with that woman and actually being there because yeah. of the way the camera had to, in a documentary style, record it. So I, I love that. I love throwing away what is basically traditional cinematography for a, a movie yeah. and using anything that goes to make it work. Well, like, like you would have told your students, surely uh, you learn the rules so you can break them. Absolutely. And also working with directors like George Miller and uh, and uh, Peter Weir, particularly Trenchard Smith in Australia, mm. and some in America too, and certainly in England, they take you to the boundaries yeah. of your knowledge of cinematography. And then they pull out the wire cutters and they'll cut that wire yeah. and keep walking in the outer boundaries of your professional ease. Yeah. And 
and make you push your brain into corners you've never gone before to help make their film. And I love that. I think that is the essence of filmmaking yeah. uh, on, on, in, a big, in a big all-round scale. John, you've been a real trooper, mate. I know the beer's probably hot now, but listen, thank you for, for spending this hour. Uh, I, I kept you half an hour longer than I, I wanted to. but No, uh... it, it's fantastic. And I've got one little anecdote of Warwick. Okay, cool. Which, which occurred about uh, 15... Oh, gee, uh, 87, 90. Uh, it, 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 oh, God, it's nearly 30 years ago. That I heard from a mate of mine who travelled through Warwick, popped into a little cafe... And he said, your photograph's on the wall. And I said, what do you mean, my photograph's on the wall? He said, yeah, there's a photograph of you on the wall as one of uh, Warwick's sons who've gone out into the big world and made good and a little writing underneath about how you won an Academy Award for, for English patient. I said, go on. So a year later, I was coming down through the New England Highway in yeah. Warwick wow. and I went looking and it took a while but we found this cafe oh, and there was the photograph wow. so we got a coffee and a, and a roll and I didn't want to say anything to the two girls behind the counter yeah. but my wife you know women and women and my wife said look who that is that is the photograph the girl freaked yeah. she her hands on her cheeks gave out a squeal and dived out behind the counter yeah. <laughs> she was so oh. embarrassed I, I've got I, I've got a, I've got some six degrees of separation with that story. That cafe that that photo used to be in was in the cinema, which I was a projectionist in. God damn it! There we go. There yeah, there, yeah. there is two degrees of separation. I reckon because it was we found it near the theatre. That's yeah, right. I was a projectionist in that theatre. Fantastic. There you go. So, now, did yeah. you did, did you? Put the pictures up. Was no, it no, no. Or? The uh, the the chap who still runs the theatre, Michael Carews, uh, originally started here in Warwick with the first uh, video store. His wife died, and that building that the cafe and the cinema were in was a giant video store back when video was king. Right. And his wife died of cancer, and he went back to Lebanon, and they toured around for a while, and he came back and. He still owned the building, and there was a lot of debate for a while what he was going to put in there, maybe a bowling alley, something like that. And then eventually it was found out it was going to be a cinema. So um, the, the Lebanese are very family-orientated, so he brought all his family back and his brothers. Some, some of the brothers helped with the cinema, and the other brother and his wife ran the cafe. And because it was attached to a theatre... Uh, oddly enough, there was no other, uh, like, uh, I mean, the movie posters were up in there sometimes, but they had these two photographs in there of local Oscar winners. One was Jeffrey Rush, who was born in Toowoomba. That's right, that's just, right. Just north, and, and yourself. And I was like, you know, it was just weird that there was nothing else. There was just these two. I think they had a picture of Nicole Kidman when she had won her Oscar or, or, or something like that. Maybe Kate Blanchett, I think. But um, but the initial two pictures were just yourself, John Seal, and and uh, and Jeffrey Rush. And Jeffrey Rush was good, born in Toowoomba, and, and there was John, born in Warwick. And, um, yeah, so that was the... Uh, yeah, I, I remember... <laughs> I didn't put the pictures in there, though, but... Um, oh, was... fantastic. Oh, that's a lovely story. So there you go. Yeah.
Yeah. That'll tie it all well, together. But it's been fantastic after all these years and admiring all your work um, to, to speak to you, John, and it's been it's been a real privilege. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry, man.